0: We thank you for the precious gift of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who died in our place. We praise you, Lord, for for all your good gifts to us. We pray that you will take these gifts that have been given now and through the week and that you will use them. That the name of Jesus Christ might be lifted high amongst this people, across this city, and to the ends of the earth, that Jesus Christ might be worshipped and glorified. And Father, as we come to this, your word now, we pray by your spirit you would be with us. You would help us to see your son, Jesus, in these words, as we consider your work through and in your people throughout history might we rejoice in his great work upon the cross. And might we treasure these truths deep in our hearts and by your spirit put them into action day by day in our lives that we might be those who taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. And I wonder if you've noticed the post box in here. It's right over there on the wall by the fireworks. It's just a little gray post box. It's where all the forms that get filled in on a Sunday go. Connect forms, children's registration forms, that sort of thing. They all go in there. And we keep them safe there until they get processed in the church office later in the week. But do you know what I use that postbox for? Mostly, I use that postbox for writing notes. Notes from me to, well, to me. And that's, uh, that's not because I'm lonely. It's because I'm Forgetful. You see, I've come to learn that if I say on a Sunday uh, that I'll do something later in the week, that I'll send someone an email or, or give someone a phone call, well, there is zero chance that I'll remember that by the time I sit down at my desk a few days later. <laughs> Unless that promise also comes with a note in that post box, then my memory is just not up to the job. I'm very sorry if you've ever been on the receiving end of that. You see, I need a note to remind me of what I've said and of what I must do. And whether it's post-it notes or or knots in hankies or mnemonics or, or flashcards or reminders on your phone, we all need help, don't we, to remember things, to recall things. We are by nature forgetful people. And you know what? Our creator knows that. The God who formed us knows that we are quick to forget. And so in his kindness throughout history, God has given his people ways of remembering, ways to recall what he has said and what he has done. Indeed, the life of a believer has been described as a a constant mix of amnesia and deja vu, we are forever gripped by the feeling, I'm sure I've forgotten this before. And the meal we come to this evening is a wonderful example of God's response to that human tendency, of his gracious provision for a forgetful people. You might remember, or you might not, that we're working our way through the whole sweep of the Bible, looking at the themes of of meals and food, sampling from the smorgasbord of Scripture to get a feel for why food and meals feature so heavily in the story of God's people. And it's our prayer that as we do that, as we come to these passages of Scripture and as we seek to apply them to our lives, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. And so this evening, we come to the Passover, a meal to remember. And this chapter, Exodus 12, is a strange sort of mixture between descriptive narrative passages telling us what's going on at the time, at the first ever Passover, and then interwoven with that narrative, sets of instructions, directions for for future Passovers. It's almost as though Moses is providing us a live text commentary on events as they happen explaining their lasting significance, even as the ancient Israelites experienced them for the first time. Oh, and what an experience that first Passover must have been. Look with me again at what they were asked to do. They were to select a lamb, and then, verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Well, what an assault on the senses. Now, there's plenty here that is of great spiritual significance, and we'll get to that, but don't miss the physical, tangible nature of these instructions. Just imagine the the bleating as each household cared for their selected lamb. A bleating brought to an abrupt end at twilight on the 14th day of the month as each lamb was slaughtered. Not in the, the sterile, aseptic environment that we like to prepare our meat in today, no, no, rather in the reality of butchery in the ancient world blood soaking into each white fleece as the knife did its work. And then with a branch, they were to smear some of that blood around the doorframe of the house. I don't know, maybe their stomachs were stronger back then, but you wonder, don't you, if some of them might have retched as they did it. But But then, praise God. A more palatable experience, a pleasant aroma as the lamb was roasted, the promise of a a satisfying and tasty meal, the savoury, juicy, tender, slightly sweet taste of roasted lamb, offset by the, the tang of bitter herbs, perhaps horseradish or chicory. And not only the taste, but but the whole setting. It was to be eaten standing up, dressed and, and ready to go. Even the unrisen bread, speaking of the haste with which the exodus would happen when it finally came. Do you see? Do you perceive? Do you taste? This was not only to be a a memory prompt for the mind, but for the whole body, for the entire human experience. Year by year, as as the ancient Israelites carried out the commemorative Passover, each and every sense would have been engaged, and they would have been transported back to that first night of salvation. They would have been reminded that that the exodus was not only a wonderful story to tell, but was a real account of a real, tangible, physical act. They were not simply to recall the Lord's salvation. They were commanded to taste, to really taste and see that the Lord is good. And I wonder for us today, I wonder whether we take the opportunities that the Lord grants us through our experience of his creation to be reminded of his goodness, not only intellectually but physically and tangibly. Few of us, I imagine, will celebrate an annual Passover meal, but there are regular daily reminders of God's kindness to us the physical world that he has put us in, the sensations and experiences that we have. He intends us to reflect on those and to respond in thanksgiving and worship. I remember, for instance, during my time as a student, I studied up in Scotland, and after a particularly wet few weeks, I found myself increasingly bothered by the seemingly never ending rain. It was nothing major, but, but I was fed up and I grumbled every time it rained. That aspect of, of God's creation did not bring me joy. That was until, in his kindness, the Lord brought me to these words spoken by God in Isaiah 55. Not only had I been reminded of the the physical earthly benefits of rain, nothing that you or I eat would be here without the regular provision of water from the Lord. But also now, I had a deeper spiritual reality that I have been reminded of during thousands of rain showers ever since. Now, when I'm caught in the rain that very everyday, very physical experience serves to remind me of my God's grace in communicating with his creation, of his kindness in in revealing himself to us in his word, and of the privilege that I have to be able to meet him here in the pages of the Bible. It's only a little thing but it has increased my enjoyment of creation and enriched my relationship with my creator. Now, unlike the Passover for for the ancient Israelites, we're not commanded to remember those verses every time it rains. It's not a requirement of faithful discipleship of the Lord Jesus. But I wonder if there are areas of our lives, of our everyday experiences when and simply placing them within the bigger picture of God's revelation and, and God's salvation might bring us greater joy, might give us greater satisfaction in him and might remind us of forgetful people that he is a loving and kind God. Are there physical reminders in your day-to-day lives? that will help you to taste and see that the Lord is good. But hang on a minute, you might be thinking. That's a lovely idea, and, and it's all very well. But if we take this account in Exodus 12 in its entirety, is the Passover really a reminder of God's goodness? Does this meal really lead us to unqualified rejoicing? Because, of course, there was another side to that first Passover. For the ancient Israelites, yes, a a moment of celebration, of, of deliverance, of freedom from centuries of oppression and suffering. but for the Egyptians. Added to the, to the riot of sensory experience of the sacrifice and the meal, added to all of that, was the screams. The screams of those who had not marked their houses with the blood of the lamb. Even as the ancient Israelites savored their roasted meat, The next-door neighbors were going through hell on earth. You wonder, did their heart-rending cries of, of anguish and pain drift across to the Israelite camp on that fateful night? Would that not cause our feast to stick in our throats In the years to come, as they reenacted that night, I wonder, would they think of those Egyptian families? How could they taste the Lord's goodness in that? How can we, as we come to this account today, to those terrible final verses of our passage, not turn our stomachs sour? Verse 29, at midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. They're harrowing words, aren't they? And and yet I think if we take a moment to look really carefully at this passage, to consider exactly what is going on, well well then I think we'll find that these uncomfortable words lend a, a richness and a depth to our understanding of God's goodness that we wouldn't otherwise know. Even these jarring and upsetting verses add layers and and texture to the flavors we experience in this world that help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because, you see, the exodus wasn't some great political act of emancipation, a wonderful example of the underdog overcoming impossible odds to stick it to the man, at least... It wasn't primarily about that, no. The exodus was primarily an act of God's judgment against sin, coupled with an extraordinary outpouring of his gracious, merciful salvation. I wonder, did you spot it as we listened earlier in verse 13? Just listen again. It's about the blood being a sign... But who is it a sign for? Verse 13, the Lord says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood was a sign for the Israelites of their safety, of, of God's provision for them. But who else? <laughs> the lord goes on the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and and when i see the blood i will pass over you do you see the blood was also a sign for god that he might see and pass over the israelite families we hear it again in verse 23 When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. The blood was a sign to God. And so when the ancient Israelites were to commemorate this great event in future years and, and when the younger generations asked what they were celebrating, what were they to say? Well, don't look down just yet but I'm going to read from verse 26, and I want you to finish the sentence. It says this, When your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, and and what? How would you finish that description of the exodus? when he passed over the houses of the Israelites and and led us out of slavery to freedom and ended the tyranny we'd suffered for many years and brought us out to the land that he'd promised us. Well, all of those are true. Yahweh was indeed doing all of those things. But that's not how Scripture ends that verse. Tell them, verse 27, tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. You see, the Exodus was an act of God's judgment against sin. The issue for the Egyptians wasn't that they were Egyptian. It was that they had rebelled against God. They had failed to acknowledge Him as creator and sustainer, Lord and King. They had gone chasing after other gods. But they weren't the only ones. Tim Chester puts it wonderfully. The Israelites had to daub the blood on the doorposts precisely because they were as guilty as the Egyptians and so needed a substitute to die in their place if they were to avoid the judgment of death. The blood is daubed around the doors, not because God can't tell who's inside the house, but because he can. He knows There are sinners inside. You see, when it came to God's judgment against sin, the ancient Israelites were just as much in the firing line as the Egyptians were. And yet they were spared. Why? Because of their faith in the means that Yahweh had provided. They were spared, not because of their own righteousness, nor because of their heritage, but because they trusted in the sacrificial lamb. They took God at his word, and they trusted in the blood. And so as they carried out the sacrifice, along with the grisly painting task, as they ate the bitter herbs as well as the lamb, Even as they heard the screams of those devastated Egyptian parents. The gravity of the situation would have been hammered home for them. The just and right judgment of the Lord had fallen. And they had been spared. Oh how sweet that lamb must have tasted. You see, even the bitter things in this world, even the struggles and hardships, the suffering and pain, the things that make our stomachs turn, even they can help us to see that the Lord is good. If only we will allow them to remind us of the wonderful grace, the undeserved kindness of our God living as we do in, in a world that is ravaged by sin and its effects, we will daily encounter those effects in our own lives. And when we do, will we allow them to add texture and, and depth to our understanding of who God is and of his ways? Will we allow the bitterness of our struggle and pain to highlight all the more the sweetness of his good salvation, to throw into sharp relief the mercy of our God, that he has not left us without hope in this world. I wonder, let's, let's go back to rain for a second, because you see, I recently had a conversation with another believer here, who comes from a desert country, A country that knows drought year in, year out. And talk to her about rain. Oh, she lights up. She loves it. However joyful I might be about rain, now that I've got Isaiah 55 to hold on to, oh, she knows that joy at a whole new level. Her knowledge and experience of the terrible effects of a lack of rainfall have led her to rejoice all the more when the Lord does send water. Knowing the struggles and strains of this life in greater depth has brought a quality and a richness to her understanding of God's kindness and goodness that I simply do not know. And this is not to to trivialize or diminish our experience of suffering or, or the suffering we observe in the lives of those around us. No, rather, it helps us to see suffering within the wider story of God's good salvation in this world. You see, there was not a house in Egypt that did not experience death that night. Some, the death of a child others the death of a lamb in a child's place. And as those wails of grief drifted over into Israelite ears, they would have been confronted with just how severe the problem of sin is. And so they would have been reminded of just how great a mercy that they had been shown in the substitution that had taken place in order to secure their salvation. The blood shed that they might go free. The blood of God's chosen sacrificial substitute. The blood of the Lamb. And that, of course, helps us to see where where this meal of remembrance finds its closest equivalent in the life of Christians today. Because we are are not commanded to celebrate the Passover meal year by year, though doing so may be a helpful reminder of our history as a people. But we are commanded to share bread and wine with one another in communion regularly. Now, we'll think more about this in a few weeks' time when we come to the Last Supper in this sermon series. But for now, let's at least see this. That this simple meal of bread and wine was given by God to be a lasting ordinance, a meal of remembrance, a physical, tangible, edible reminder of the greater Passover, that those events in Egypt pointed towards. And just like that meal, this meal leads us to call to mind not only the sweetness of our salvation, but also to remember the more savory reality of God's judgment, his right and and good judgment over sin that has ruined this, his creation. Judgment deserved by you and by me. But judgment taken if we're in Christ. Judgment taken in our place by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. And so let me encourage you in a moment as we share bread and wine together to engage your senses As you see me tear the bread here at the front, let it remind you of of the flesh of our dear Saviour, torn as he was flogged, pierced by brutal nails, punctured by a Roman spear, and taste God's goodness as you see the judgment you deserved, fall on him. As you take the bread and and eat, let that be to you a reminder of, of all the Lord's provision for you. Day by day, week by week, in his kindness, by his grace, he upholds and sustains your life. Taste and see God's goodness in giving you life and breath. In giving you Christ and salvation, in giving you every good thing. As you see the deep red wine, allow yourself to remember his blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin, shed as a sign for you and as a sign for God himself. Painted and no longer on the doorposts, but dripping down that wooden cross, speaking of our God's righteous judgment and of His gracious mercy. And as you taste that bittersweet wine, know that God is good in both the trial and the triumph. Our oh, dear friends, we are a forgetful people. But our loving God in his kindness has given us this meal that we might be transported back not to Egypt and the Exodus, but to Calvary and the cross to his full and final salvation. And if you don't yet know that salvation for yourself, if you are not trusting in the death of Jesus Christ in your place, then please let the bread and wine pass. They are a reminder for those of us who are in him. But please do take this time to reflect on what the Lord has been saying to us this evening for his just and right judgment will fall. And whether it falls on us, a sinful and rebellious people, or whether it falls on his son in our place, is determined by whether or not we put our faith in God's chosen means of salvation, his Passover sacrifice, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world let's pray as we prepare to share communion oh almighty god as we come to this, your table, to share in this meal. We do so very conscious of our unworthiness. Conscious that we, just like the Egyptians, just like the ancient Israelites, do not deserve your kindness to us. Father, we deserve your judgment on our sin and rebellion, on our running after other gods. Father, oh we come this evening in repentance, recognizing our desperate need for a savior. But Lord, we come also in faith, trusting in your word to us, trusting in your promise of salvation, that through the blood of the Lamb, through the death of your Son Jesus Christ, we might know forgiveness full and free. Lord, would these gifts, this bread and this wine, be to us the body and blood of your dear son. Help us to call to mind your judgment pronounced on him, fallen on him, that we might know your mercy and your love.